You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. Matthew chapter 11 is where we are today in our study of God's Word. Both this morning and this evening, we will be in verses 20 through 24, Matthew chapter 11. And we will read beginning at verse 20 down to the 24th verse. The Bible says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask His blessing. Lord, we turn our faces to You and we ask for Your help in this next hour. We joyfully confess that without Christ we can do nothing. The preacher is inadequate in himself, incapable of any good thing apart from Christ. The hearers, we are inadequate in ourselves and apart from Christ, powerless. So every good thing that might be accomplished in this next hour, Lord, depends on you. And we ask knowing that you are pleased to grant it. Would you bless this next hour of proclamation and the reception of your word? We thank you for those who were baptized this morning. We thank you for your saving work in these days. We ask that you would continue to save. Even this day, as this sermon goes forth, would you, Lord, save. And we thank you for how you deal with us, your people, every day, how patient you are toward us, how kind. We meet with new mercies every morning. And one of those mercies is that you deal with us in a way that we put away our sins And you renew in our hearts the desire to please you and to obey you in in all respects. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do that in our hearts today, that you would encourage us and correct us and fortify us in every way that you know that we need. We will thank you for what you accomplish and give you praise. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior and King, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To receive the truth is a weighty matter. In some ways, it's a fearful thing. We are a people who understand what it means to tremble at the Word of God. To receive the Word of God is weighty. Where light is received and believed, it makes for joy. You and I know a happiness, we know a joy. Since the Lord has saved us, since we've been brought into the light, brought into the truth, we know a joy that we never knew outside of Christ. 
But wherever truth is rejected, it brings judgment. In fact, it brings greater judgment than if you had never received the truth. That's what makes it fearful. That's what makes it weighty. To not receive truth is a judgment from God. But to receive truth and to reject it brings judgment from God. So in in a sense, better to have never received the truth than to have received it and rejected it. What makes this especially frightening is that lost humanity is numb to that truth. Lost man doesn't tremble before the Word of God. He doesn't understand what a privilege it is to receive light. And so to reject it, to throw it away, to diminish it, to mock it, really doesn't mean anything to the man or woman who doesn't know Christ. But even redeemed ones, due to the abiding flesh that we know, the sin principle that still operates within us, even we who know Jesus, in seasons of our lives, we can underestimate what a responsibility has been imparted to us, what an accountability that has been imparted to us because of what we know. James 4.17 says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. We often understand the sins that we commit in terms of commission. We understand what it is to behave in ways, speak in ways, act in ways that are sinful. But do we think often about our sins of omission? I mean, what we should have done. Given what we've been given, given what we know, what kind of lives should we be living? One day, the gracious but serious judgment seat of Christ where we are judged for the purpose of rewards, one day that judgment seat will reveal not just what we've been, but what we could have been, what we should have been, given the light that we received. Our Lord is talking about that in these verses. He has described a foolish generation that met with the kingdom of heaven and behaved like sinful, stubborn children playing in a marketplace. Watch the children play with each other and and note from time to time the children that, that just can't be pleased. They do not cooperate. They are sinful and they are stubborn and it's on display. And so if you're playing wedding, they want to play funeral. And if you're playing funeral, they want to play wedding. And he said, that's what this foolish generation is like. John the Baptist came to you in funeral mode and you said he had a demon. I have come to you in wedding mode And you say that I'm a gluttonous man, a drunkard. The real problem with you is not the messengers. The problem is the message. But, Jesus says, in the end, wisdom will be proven to be wisdom. In verse 19, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Wisdom will be proven to be wisdom in the end. The deeds will demonstrate it. The fruit will prove it so that the foolish generation will one day be proven to be foolish. Those who have rejected the message and used the messengers as their excuse, they will be proven to be foolish. And it is that end 
that Jesus talks about in our verses. What is it going to be like when it's all said and done? What is it going to be like for a foolish generation? For a people who met with light, who met with truth, and found excuses to dismiss it. Who had the opportunity to receive it, but instead they rejected it. What is it going to be like for them? And what he describes is woeful. Verse 21, woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Capernaum, do you think you're going to be exalted to heaven? No, you're going to be taken down to hell. In the end, they meet with what is full of regret and sadness and pain, tremendous judgment. So today we're going to consider that. We're going to be thinking about three woeful results when truth is refused. Three woeful results when you meet with the light of God's Word, when you meet with the light of God's truth and you don't receive it, you reject it. My prayer is that anybody in this room who has been turning your mind and heart and life away from the truth you've been given, my prayer is that today God would open your eyes to the weightiness of your rejection. And you would understand what is at the end of the road for you if you go on rejecting the light. So that today, perhaps, hearts of stone would become hearts of flesh. And the truth will be embraced. And your life will be different. That's my prayer. This morning we're going to look at the first one of these. Tonight we'll come back and look at the other two. Three woeful results when truth is refused. This morning we're going to think about just the first one. It's simple, it's straightforward, but it's, it's important. Refusing truth results in guilt. When you refuse the truth, you incur guilt. Verse 20, then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. And he goes on, verse 22, to talk about judgment. I, I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Verse 24, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Why is that so? Because the truth they have received has now made them responsible for it. There's an accountability that is attached to it so that when they refuse the truth, they incur guilt. Now, you know this, but bear this in mind. Since the fall of Adam, the people who are receiving the truth are already guilty. Sinners by nature before we are sinners by choice. Born into the world deserving of the wrath of God by nature. And then we confirm who we are by how we live. Who we are by nature is proven, demonstrated, confirmed by the sinful lives that we live thereafter. So the people receiving the truth are people who are already guilty. And the truth that comes to us is the truth of how our guilt can be put away. 
how we can be forgiven for all of our sins, how we can be reconciled to our Creator, how we can live lives that please Him instead of call for His wrath. This is the truth that comes to us, how to be relieved of our guilt so that when we turn away the message of how to be forgiven of our guilt, not only have we proven and confirmed that we are already guilty, but we add to our guiltiness. What a sin is it when we refuse mercy? I mean, we deserve the wrath of God. He comes to us with a message that would save us from his own wrath, and we say no. What kind of guilt belongs to that kind of pride? John 3.18 says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What is being confirmed about lost humanity? Listen to verse 19, and, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. What is confirmed is that we are evil. What is confirmed is that we love darkness. The light gets in the way of our enjoyment of the darkness. And so we reject the light. Jesus is denouncing specific cities. Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. He denounced them. The word, the Greek word there for denounced, to denounce is a word that means to find justifiable fault with someone, to reproach, to reprimand. Jesus is citing the faults of these cities and his reproofs of them, his rebukes of them are entirely justified. He's telling them the truth. He's telling them what's true about them. They need to hear it. In fact, it's a mercy that he's telling them. Just a quick side note, but I think it's important. This culture, this time we're living in, tends to treat all correction like a lack of compassion. If you tell us where we're wrong, you're hateful. If you tell us where we're wrong, you're bigoted. What we need to know is this. When, when you're being told the truth about something that is going to destroy you, that's love. That's compassion. In fact, the very word that Jesus uses when he says, woe to you, woe to you, that is a word that mixes warning and compassion. There's a sadness in that word. Leon Morris said it well. He said, woe to you is not a grim call for vengeance, but an expression of regret. Many translations render it how terrible it will be. It combines warning and compassion, close quote. How terrible it's going to be for you, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum. How terrible it's going to be for you. It is warning mixed with compassion. Same kind of thing you see when Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem. Luke 19:41 says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. 
saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Oh, it's vengeance that he is describing. It's the wrath of God, but he weeps over it. This is what preaching is meant to include. I mean, even preaching to the church. It's not just exhortation. It's not just instruction. It's not just this is the way in which we should walk. You can't acknowledge the right way in which we should go if you don't also acknowledge the way in which we should not go. The things we must turn away from. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Then listen, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. There it is. That's shepherding with the Word of God. With love and compassion and patience, you instruct people, you exhort people, but you also reprove people and you rebuke people because where there is love, there is correction. And so our Lord is denouncing the cities, but it's not just the announcement of vengeance. It is a warning. And it is an expression of regret, sadness. He mentions three cities in these verses. Verse 21, woe to you Chorazin, woe to you Bethsaida. Then in verse 23, he mentions Capernaum. What do we know about these cities? Well, Chorazin, we know very little about. In fact, it's only mentioned twice in the New Testament. It's mentioned here and in a parallel passage in Luke 10 when the same announcement is being described in the Gospel of Luke. Located about two miles from Capernaum, slightly to the northwest of the Sea of Galilee, if you were to look at it on a map, there's a lesson when you think about Chorazin. Matthew says in verse 20, most of his miracles were done in these cities. Most of the mighty things that he was doing, many of these things, multiplied fashion, these things were done in these three cities, and yet Chorazin is just mentioned. What does that tell you? We have all these miracles in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all these miracles described that Jesus performed. You don't have one described that was performed in Chorazin but the Spirit of God tells us that most of His mighty works were done in, in these three cities. In other words, a lot happened in Chorazin that we don't have the opportunity to read about. I'll say it to you another way. Jesus did a lot more than what you have in your Bible. What He did is already beyond our belief, but what He did is much greater than what was recorded for us. You talk about light, you talk about responsibility, you talk about accountability. If all you had is what you have on the pages of Scripture, oh, what an accountability would belong to these things. But Jesus did more than we have in our Bibles. The Bible acknowledges this. John 21, 25 says, Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
Do you understand that when Jesus was on this earth, there was an explosion of supernatural testimony? Chorazin just mentioned. And yet, most of his mighty works were done in these cities. Bethsaida, what do we know about it? The city from which Philip, Andrew, and Peter came. John 1.44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Name of the city means house of fishing. It was a fishing city. That was his primary industry. Near this city, Jesus fed the multitudes. In this city, Jesus gave sight to a blind man. Everything he did in this city is not recorded, but those two miracles are recorded. The feeding of the multitudes, granting of sight to a blind man. Capernaum, home base for the ministry of Jesus in Galilee. It's where he lived. Can you, can you imagine being the city in which the Son of God has taken up residence? What kind of light has been given to a city like that? Well, Matthew describes it. In chapter 4, verse 12, it says, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned like the sun is risen. The light is shining in full strength in a city where the Son of God lives. It was in Capernaum, we saw this in Matthew chapter 8, it was in Capernaum that Jesus healed the centurion's servant from a distance by command. Jesus willing to go to that man's house, a man who understood authority says, you don't have to come to my house. I'm a man under authority. I have those under me. You just speak the word, it'll be done. And Jesus marveled at that man's faith and, and he, he commanded it and the, the servant was healed from a distance by his word. It was in that same city that Jesus with Peter's mother-in-law took away her fever. And then into that evening, you remember the whole place came out to meet with him and he healed them all. I mean, you want to talk about supernatural, explosion of the supernatural. There were entire cities and villages where all of the sick and all of the lame and all the demon-possessed were relieved, delivered, healed, liberated. What characterizes these three cities? They have been given light. They have been given light. What does he denounce about them? He began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done. Why? Because they did not repent. He reproves them. He indicts them for something related to the mighty deeds. You received the light of these mighty deeds. You did not repent. What does that tell us? mention a few things. First of all, it tells us that the signs were meant to be received as a testimony. The signs were meant to be received as a testimony. You had these mighty deeds done in your midst. You did not do with those mighty deeds what you should have done. You should have repented, but you did not. 
That tells us that the signs were a message. They were a testimony meant to be received. Instead, they were resisted as to the message they communicated. They were resisted, they were disregarded, they were denied, they were ignored, they were slandered. John is demon-possessed. Jesus is a sinner. It's going to get worse. Eventually, they're going to take these mighty deeds that Jesus does and assign those to Satan. He does what he does by the power of Satan. And you need to remember that these signs are not being performed in a vacuum. They are following preaching, proclamation, a message that's clear, straightforward, in which Old Testament revelation is being tied to the signs. The people were being called to recognize what you're witnessing is a fulfillment of what was prophesied so that the kingdom is near. The king is being presented. But not only were the Old Testament prophecies being connected to the signs, there was just the straightforward proclamation of the kingdom by John the Baptist and by Jesus. The first words you read about Jesus preaching are in Matthew 4, 17, where it says, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When you are saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and then you're performing all of these signs and miracles, the signs can easily be linked up with the message. So that when you don't repent as you've been commanded to do, you are taking the signs and rejecting what they communicate. The second thing you, you gather from that is the testimony must have been unmistakable, which means the people were responsible. He is denouncing them. He is rebuking them, which says they should have been able to connect the signs to the message and to do what they were being called to do, which was repent. This isn't vague. This isn't hard to receive from the standpoint of, of intellect. The message was clear, unmistakable. They should have been convinced. They should have been convinced. That's an important message down to our own day. Sometimes you'll hear people say, in light of the gospel in light of the Bible's truth in response to a believer who's trying to share the truth with them, you'll hear, hear people say, well, I just don't find that convincing. I just want you to be clear about this, dear ones. Listen, it doesn't matter whether you're convinced or not. What matters is should you be convinced? If God has given you information sufficient to convince human beings, then the fact you are not convinced will only serve to judge you one day. What it's going to demonstrate is the reason you were not convinced is not because what you were given wasn't sufficient to convince you, but rather your sinful stubbornness kept you from being convinced. You were not convinced because you didn't want to be convinced. You were not convinced because you refused to be convinced, not because the the information, the evidence wasn't sufficient. Isn't it amazing how we think we settle every argument? Well, I'm just not convinced. As though that settles it. 
There you go. You walk away scot-free because you were not convinced, right? These people were not convinced. Jesus says they're going to be judged. Capernaum was not convinced. He says that she's going to be taken down to Hades. So the measure of, of whether something is true or not is not you. The measure of it is God. And when God has given you truth and you reject it, you're going to be held accountable for it. It's not whether you were convinced or not, it's whether you should have been convinced. John 10, 37, Jesus said, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that the works that he did were so powerful, so undeniable, so unmistakable, that even if, even if they had struggled to believe him, they should have believed what he did and gotten the message. The third thing that stands out, the signs communicate a message. The message is discernible. It is recognizable. They should have been convinced. The third thing you recognize is that what it means to receive the message from these signs, what it means to receive the message is more than just being amazed by it or admiring it. He doesn't denounce them because they were not amazed. He doesn't denounce them because they never expressed admiration for Him. He denounces them because they didn't repent. The point of the signs was not entertainment. The point of the signs was not to win the applause of the cities. The point of the signs was to deliver sinners from their sins. And so you could be amazed by it and still be guilty. You could admire it and still be guilty. What's being called for is what Jesus announced in Matthew 4, 17, and what John the Baptist preached, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see an example of that, that, that falling short and how it happens. I mean, to this day, there are people who have admiration for Christianity, who can even say, you know, I'm amazed sometimes by what I see and how, how you people love each other. They can be amazed by it. They can admire it and still, and maybe even compliment themselves on the idea, well, I'm not, you know, I'm not hostile to you. I'm not hostile to Jesus. I'm not hostile to the church. I'm not hostile to Christianity. If that works for you, good for you. I just try to be a good person, a friendly person. Can't we all just get along and live together? I don't think like you think or believe what you believe, but I applaud you. Good for you. And so sort of compliment themselves in their minds and think, you know, I'm really a, a gracious, gregarious kind of person. Well, listen to what really is at the root of that. What happened in Nazareth? Let's just look over with me so you can see it with your eyes. Luke chapter 4. Let's turn to the right there. Luke chapter 4. Look at verse 22. Jesus has read from the law in the synagogue. He has announced that what he read was being fulfilled in their presence. Verse 22, And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Well, we know him. He grew up here. And we're amazed at how far he's come. 
He's quite a teacher, isn't he? You're amazing, Jesus. And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. God's sovereign in salvation, he, he sometimes shows mercy to Gentiles, not Jews. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. What happened? You're amazing, Jesus. You've come a long way. Isn't this Joseph's son? And now they are angry with him. How angry? Verse 29, they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. They're ready to kill him. Do you understand? You can applaud Christianity. You can be amazed at some of the good things you see in it. But when God in His Word gets to the root of who you are, and goes to the heart of your sin problem, that's where we discover what you really think of the message. That's where the anger of man toward God, the hatefulness of man, sinful man toward God emerges. And sometimes that anger is expressed like this, where it's murderous, but many times that anger is expressed in just sinful stubbornness. And so you can admire Jesus and be amazed at His deeds, but that's not the question. The question is, will you repent? Will you deal with sin in agreement with God? So the signs meant to be received as a testimony. The testimony so unmistakable that the people who received it are now responsible. And what they're being asked for is not to be amazed by it or to admire it or to applaud it. Fourth, Reception of the testimony is repentance. How do you know you've received the message? You repent. That's what Jesus is rebuking them for. Because they did not repent. What is repentance? You hear a lot about repentance if you're a Christian. Sometimes I can't help but, I mean, it's sad. It's sad, but I sort of chuckle to myself. If you're on Twitter at all and you see people, it's like dueling calls for repentance. You repent, no, you repent. No, you repent, no, you repent. People are mad at each other. And when I read that, I think to myself, you don't know what repentance is. Or you would put away your own sinful attitude. What is repentance? It is a change of mind and heart that results in a change of course. It's a work of the Spirit of God where your thinking changes. Therefore, your heart attitude toward these things you're thinking about has changed, and the result of that is your life changes. It is a fundamental change in your disposition. I mean, it goes down to the level of your worldview. 
a transformation in your thinking, your disposition that is so profound, your, your view of the world changes. There's a complete reorientation of the life around whatever it is where repentance is taking place. It means you are coming into a place of agreement with God where before you had not agreed with God. Now you agree with the revelation you're given. You you agree with the light that has been, been put into your realm of accountability. You see it. You embrace it. You agree with it. Therefore, your life changes. Which means it is more than just an intellectual acknowledgement of what is true. You have to put away evil to embrace that truth. See, it's possible to sort of stand at a distance from truth and say, you know, I agree with that. All right, what are you going to do about that? Are you going to put away what is in disagreement with that and embrace it so that your life changes in response to that? That's repentance. Repentance requires turning away from error, turning away from evil to pursue, to embrace the truth, which means that wherever you have true repentance, there will be fruit. There will be fruit. John the Baptist made that clear, didn't he? Luke chapter 3, verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. Do you notice he's saying different things to different people based upon the lives they're living? And what he's saying is, you now need to live in accordance with God's Word. Stop doing the things you've been doing that violate His law and begin to practice things that please Him. That is repentance. What are some fruits of repentance we can talk about in this room today? Let me mention a few things. If you're going to repent, you're going to be honest about your sin. There is no repentance without honesty. Can you be honest about your own sin? And are you aware of the ways that we try to avoid honesty about our sin? We can avoid honesty about our sin by only wanting to deal with it at a very superficial level. I see that. I know. I know. And what we really want to do is just move past the subject. That's not honesty, just because you'll acknowledge that you did it. I mean, are you really willing to look at it and have the Lord change it? 
Or is it just verbal acknowledgement? I see it. Sometimes, though, we don't even do that. We relabel it. We won't even call it what it was. We'll call it something else. Or we will shift the blame for it. I know this about myself and about you. We have a room full here of blame shifters. Everybody has done this at some time or another. Well, if you hadn't talked to me the way you talked to me, I wouldn't have said what I said. Well, if you weren't so grouchy or if you were more... I mean, we have all these things that, yes, I know I was wrong, but there's always something that follows the but that just distances us a little bit from the guilt of what we've done. Can you be honest about your sin? Repentance involves that kind of honesty, which means we're treating our sin as sin. Do you view it just as a mistake, a weakness, a fault? Or is it a violation of God's Word? Is it a sin? And if it is a sin, do you recognize that sin occurs that can affect two realms. We sin, always sin against God. Every sin is a sin against God. But then there are sins we also commit that affect people. And we've got to be willing to confess our sins in both respects. First, as David said in the Psalms, against you and you only have I sinned in the sense that the preeminent way that I have failed is against you, God. But by that, David did not mean that he had not committed adultery that he didn't sin against Bathsheba, that he didn't sin against Uriah. He knew he had. But before you can deal honestly with your sin against people, you first have to deal honestly with what you've done against God. So will you treat your sin as sin against God? Then where there is true repentance, honesty, not relabeling it, dealing with it for what it is, it's sin, then there is sorrow over it. Where there is true repentance, there is a broken heart. Where there is true repentance, there is is sorrow over what you've done. So that what you're engaging in is a self-judgment. It is taking the Word of God in hand and saying, it's me. That sin has been committed by me. So that there's a willingness to cast away your sin, to put it away. How many people say they're sorry and already have plans in place to commit the same thing down the road? They say they're sorry, but it's going... And no, listen, I want you to be very careful. Someone can truly repent and commit the same sin. You can truly walk through what I'm talking about and still fail again. Which is why our Lord said that if someone comes to you in the same day seven times and says, they say to you, I repent, you're to forgive them. Right? The answer is not, well, if you really repented, you would have never done it again. That's not right. Anyone here ever sinned in the same area more than once? So true repentance does not mean you'll never do it again. But each of these things is true when there's true repentance. Honesty over my sin, not calling it something other than what it is, sorrow over it, willingness to turn from it, judging myself according to the Word of God. That's sort of the negative side of the ledger, but there's always a positive side where there's true repentance because there is no repentance without faith. Faithless people cannot repent and don't repent. 
So as I turn away from evil and error, I'm embracing something and pursuing something and agreeing with something. And that's the truth. Turn away from error and evil to embrace the truth. So there's belief in the truth, which means there's submission to the truth. I will now bring my mind and my heart and my behaviors into submission to the Word of God, which means I'm now committed to the truth. There's a new pathway I want to walk. I turn, it's a 180, I turn from this pathway of sin to now pursue a pathway of obedience. That's repentance. And it is very different from the kind of sorrow and remorse that the world knows. You and I could be sorry about something we did before we were ever saved, but it was a different kind of sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. Paul writing to this church, he had reproved them. The letter had hit home. He's going to write, you really did repent as a result of what I wrote to you. Listen to how he describes it. He says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Where you have godly grief, you turn from sin to embrace God's grace and you don't look back. There's no regret over it. Whereas, he says, worldly grief produces death. Worldly sorrow, it's it's real sorrow, but it's destructive. It's not delivering because it doesn't look to God. It might look to yourself. You know, I've I've got to try harder. I've got to reform. I've got to be a better person. Or it might look to the past where you live your life in this constant pattern of regretting yesterday. Oh, that I could go back and clean it all up. And here you are 30 years later and you're still wallowing in your failures. There's no salvation in it. It's just destruction. Where there's godly sorrow, it looks to God and receives His mercy and grace and forgiveness and transformation. There's the difference. He says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. And if I had time, I would go through and unpack those descriptions he gives of this church that was actually repenting and what it looked like. What would it have looked like for these cities? They would have received the indictment. They would have agreed with the prognosis. We are sinners on our way to meet with the wrath of God. They would have believed in the remedy. The kingdom is being presented to us. The king is present with us so that they would have embraced the one who is that remedy. They would have embraced Jesus as Lord. But they did not. They had more light than anybody ever deserved to get. They saw things you and I have never seen, and they saw it in multiplied fashion but they refused the message. They did not repent, and he denounces them for it. They are guilty. This is the first woe when you refuse truth. You incur guilt. You're already guilty, but now when you turn away from God's answer for your guilt, you are more guilty. 
better to have never received the light than to receive the light and refuse it. So let me ask you, have you repented and received Christ? You. Not your family, not your husband, wife, mom, dad, siblings. You. Have you repented of your sins and received Jesus as Lord and Savior? Some of you, and I say this loving you, you have had more light given to you over your lifetime than anybody you know, and you still haven't repented. Would you turn from your sins today and receive Jesus as your Lord? There is no salvation without repentance. We've got to say this. There is no salvation without repentance. Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Acts 3.19, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 8.22, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. Acts 26.19, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Acts eleven eighteen. when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. There is no salvation without repentance. You have to turn from a life without Christ to embrace life with Christ, which will mean a new Lord, a new way, a new standard, a new you. Have you repented? And the evidence that you've repented is that you're a repenter. We are saved into a life of perpetual repentance. I'm not talking about some kind of somber life without joy. We know all our sins have been forgiven. Past, present, and future. We heard it in the baptistry today. What does that result in? A life now that wants to please the one who has forgiven us of all of our sins, which means that now, until we're glorified, we're going to come face to face throughout our lives with our sins, sins committed since we've been forgiven of them. And when we meet with those sins, what do we do? We repent. We turn from those sins to walk with Jesus step by step throughout the rest of our lives. We have been saved into a life of perpetual repentance. Are you a person who repents? When your sin is brought to you, are you honest about it? When your sin is brought to you, do you acknowledge it for what it is? When your sin is brought to you, are you brokenhearted over it? Are you Christward in the way that you deal with it? And I'm saying to you, dear one, loving you, if you're someone who can't deal with his sins today, you're not someone who's ever dealt with his sins in Christ Jesus. If you dealt with those sins in justification, you will certainly deal with those sins in sanctification. Show me someone who can't ask for forgiveness, who can't acknowledge their sins. I'll show you someone who is still in their sins. How do you know you've repented? You're a person who repents. 
And, and this is our life. Either we are self-judging or we are being judged. And, and now it's not the judgment of a prosecutor. It's the judgment of a father. Because if we don't judge our own sins, our father judges our sins and reproves us. And he does this to prove we're not going to be judged with the rest of the world. The rest of the world is going to be judged at the great white throne judgment. You and I are being judged every step of the way until the judgment seat of Christ. And either we're dealing with our own sins or if we get stubborn for a season, God deals with us so that he breaks us and changes us because we, we cannot go on like the rest of the world. I finish with this, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. He's talking to believers. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. If you're someone who just can't get away with your sin, you need to say hallelujah. If your father disciplines you over your sin and brings you again and again to the point of brokenness and humility, give him praise. You could be a worldling. You could be someone outside the family who can't see and can't repent and doesn't repent. Thank God that He led you, He granted you repentance and now brought you into a life full of repentance. What happens when you refuse the truth? You incur guilt. Tonight we'll come back and see the other two woes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank You for Your Word, Your kindness to us in Your Son, the forgiveness of all of our sins granted, offered to us in Him, and that when You saved us, Lord, You saved us into a life where we go on dealing with our sins. Forgive us, Lord, where we are slow to do that. Forgive us where we are sometimes stubborn. And grant to us hearts that are willing quickly, swiftly, with godly sorrow to turn away from anything and everything that displeases you and to pursue what is right in your sight. We ask for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.